Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where T is for The Spy Who Loved Me, the 1977 Bond film starring Sir Roger Moore as 007. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we strap on our skis and leap into the story behind the 10th Bond film, nobody does it better, it's Mr Brendan Duffy. Hello. And returning to the show, keeping the British end up, it's Agent Scott from the Scott Spy Hods podcast. Hello there, pleasure to be back. Now, oh, you're always welcome here, Scott. Always welcome. Uh, now, this is a big episode for us. Uh, not only is it one of the very best Bond films, in my opinion, that we're covering, uh, it's also our 100th episode. So, well done, us. Babies, you're the best. <laughs> Can you believe it, Brendan? Oh, we're still here. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Screaming into the void. Exactly. Exactly. 100 episodes. Yeah. I mean, it's a milestone in itself. But um, yeah, yeah. we're not here to talk about ourselves. We're here to talk about what I consider to be the best 1970s James Bond film. What do do you two think? Scott, let's start with you. I hadn't considered it as just a decade. I hadn't thought like, what is the best of the 70s? Uh, I think it probably wins that argument. But I I would put this film in my top five any day of the week. I, I am not a Roger Moore fan. I've gone down and fallen that sword many times. But there's one film of his that will always bring me back round, and it is this film. Uh, same for you, Brendan? Yes. 
I think I think you know people who listen to this podcast know that I'm not the biggest fan of Roger Moore, but uh, I think this one everything comes together. The the ingredients all make you know a really fantastic cake. It's a, it's, a, it's a certainly a confection of a movie. There is a lot going on, uh, lots mm. to talk about um, with this uh, with, with the spy who loved me. Let's just start off with um, uh, the synopsis for this film. Uh, from MGM, uh, nobody does it better than Bond, and he proves it once again in this explosively entertaining adventure that takes him from the Egyptian pyramids to a gravity-defying mountaintop ski chase. Roger Moore brings inimitable style to Agent 007 as he and the beautiful Soviet agent Anya Amasova team up to investigate missing Allied and Russian atomic submarines following a deadly trail that leads to a billionaire shipping magnate, Carl Stromberg. So that's that's the basic summary of The Spy Who Loved Me. But as I said at the start, I mean, it's one of the biggest Bond films. Not only is it considered one of the best, but it's also a, a really pivotal Bond film uh, in the series as well um, for lots of different reasons, not least of which was uh, it being Cubby's first solo Bond film. Um, any other things that set it apart, Brendan, that you've noted? Certainly set apart from the first two Rogers. Yes. Yeah, they, they finally seem to have realised what to do with him. Um, after the first two where they're still there's lingering hangover from Connery but this one they're very much it clicks into gear doesn't it absolutely yeah and 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 this is the one where we see Barbara and Michael truly entering the frame as well so uh, Michael G Wilson Barbara Broccoli yeah they sort of join the fold on this movie I think probably because of Harry's exit and that in itself marks the start of a new era so, yeah, I think it's really exciting. Also, another thing to note as well, John Glenn really marks his territory in this film in the, with the pre-title sequence. You know, I think this would probably one of the things that got him the, the gig that he ended up getting directing five of the films. Um, Scott, is it one that you've always liked? I, I've had to have been sold on it. I mean, my earliest experiences with Roger Moore was the, uh, I don't know, the, the view to a kills and the octopuses of the world, which have their place and they're a lot of fun in their own way. But it's like watching your granddad be James Bond. Now, my granddad uh, was a cool guy, rest his soul. But like, I don't want to see him schmoozing with ladies. But you go back to this bit. He feels in this film, Roger feels much more like a virile man not a granddad and he's actually at the peak of his power and I, I agree exactly with what brendan said they figured out what to do with the guy i think that's what what really helps absolutely right well let's start things off as we always do brendan uh, looking at 1977 and um, what the what hollywood was like at the time well um just for a bit of 77 context as well it was the silver jubilee of queen elizabeth ii which you know, lends nicely to what they did in the pre-title sequence, I think, the um, parachute, of course. But in terms of film, I think this is, it's safe to say this is the first Bond released since the, the Hollywood blockbuster era started. Like, right, two years after Jaws had been released, you know, now we're seeing regular big movies being released, big budget. And of course, the top three at the box office you're probably going to get the number one. Star Wars. <laughs> of course, Star Wars. And number three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So those two films would have massive repercussions in the following Bond film. Absolutely. So, you know, with the two-year turnaround that they, they they did tend to have at this time, 
that's where we see the repercussions from 77 onto Moonraker, which is, of course, why we see at the end that they say James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. But he doesn't. But he, but he doesn't. Um, well, he does, eventually. Eventually, yeah. Vi- vi- via space. Yeah, once um, they've shit the bed, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Moonraker's not that bad. <laughs> no, listen, uh, I enjoy Moonraker for what it is, but, uh, I mean, it is a jump the shark moment, isn't it? There's no denying yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But, obviously, they'd seen Star Wars take $221 million at the box office. I mean, they want a slice of that pie, don't they? Yeah. Um. But yeah, in terms of Bond, there's a, a massive loss. That's that's what we deal with here. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a big one in in sort of the lineage of James Bond. This is the first film that doesn't feature Harry Saltzman, part of the Saltzman and Broccoli production team that brought James Bond to the big screen, starting all the way back in Doctor No. But I, I think to figure out why Harry Saltzman isn't part of this film, we need to get into some chat about finances and taxes. I know you guys love that sort of Ka-ching. stuff. Yes. Press the, press the tax in. <laughs> but um, back in the 60s, Harry Saltzman opened up his own production studio. He wanted to produce his own films. He'd done a bunch of them, including the Harry Palmer spy films. The problem was barely any of his films made any money. And that's not great when you're trying to run a production studio. And to finance this studio and his other endeavours, because what was happening is his films weren't making a lot of money. And also there were several films that he actually produced that he abandoned before being released or some that were abandoned in pre-production that wasted more money. He went to a bank and he borrowed about 40 million to cover the costs. 40 million in those days is a lot of money. It's still a lot of money now, to be fair. I wish I had it. But uh, adding to that, in, earlier in the 70s, Saltzman also tried to take over Technicolor, the actual company itself. Uh, and the, he was successful in doing so, but uh, he was actually ousted pretty quickly afterwards. And that, uh, that seizure, that hostile takeover, they tried to use uh, Danjack funds. That wasn't flying with Cubby Broccoli, and they weren't too happy with that situation. So they blocked him from using that money. So ha- Harry Saltzman found even more money. And part of that deal is he sold away his half of the rights to United Artists to the bank for some more money. Eventually, he ran out of money and couldn't pay the loans. And so the, uh, the, the bill man came a-knocking and said, hey, you owe us half of United Artists. How are you going to pay that? Uh, he couldn't pay it. So unfortunately, a deal was struck where basically United Artists would buy back Harry Saltzman's half of the debt and therefore he would no longer be involved in in the production. I mean, there's lots of ins and outs because one of the other things you have to remember is they had a deal uh, where they had to create a Bond film every 18 months and they were up against the clock to do that because of this uh, Harry Saltzman issue. And there was a real element of them not being able to make this film and they were on the ropes from The Man with the Golden Gun. It did not have a good reception. They needed to hit a hit, needed to hit a home run. And so that really did force United Artists' hand. They paid for Saltzman's rights, bought him out of the whole production, and it really just marks the end of Saltzman's era. And his final film was The Man with the Golden Gun. Not the greatest legacy, but hey, he's got some other films to lean back on. Yeah, I mean, it was a really tough time, and I think uh, the the sort of the, the, the subtext of the financial issues as well is that Harry and Cubby were not getting on either. They'd had some... Uh, 
a lot of people describe them as chalk and cheese very difficult to work with i found this quote from an, when i was researching lewis gilbert from a 2011 interview he said at cubby is lovely to work with and harry was a bit of a pig and no he didn't get on with anybody he was very difficult but you wonder how much of that comes down to his financial difficulties and he also had a lot of personal problems going on at the time as well he did um, he, he had um his his wife i think had cancer at the time she wasn't doing yeah. too well yeah. Um, so a lot of personal stress as well as financial stress. It clearly just got to the guy, and you know we, we've all had bad times, and I'm sure he wasn't going through the best of them at this time. I guess it turned out all right. He he got his finances settled eventually, but uh, yeah, it's a shame. But this marks the end of Harry Saltzman's involvement with James Bond. Yeah, and the, the silver lining is that now that United Artists own half of the film, uh, or at least um, uh, uh, of the of the production, they basically are getting more profits from the movie so for this movie this movie itself by love me benefits because they put everything into it they give cubby everything that he needs to make the best movie they can because they know they're sitting on a gold mine they'll make more money from it so um yeah right i mean that's the, that's the context of it let's talk let's talk about uh, the people who made the movie and the first of all we always look at the director so now, Guy Hamilton, having just directed three Bond movies in a row, um, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun, he was in the frame to direct again. And he went to Hollywood to work on the script with Dick Maybaum, but it didn't work out. Uh, he said in an interview, Maybaum didn't want to work with me, and I don't want to work, I didn't want to work with Maybaum. So there was no love lost there. Uh, Hamilton left the project to direct Superman. Um, but uh, unfortunately he wasn't able to commit to Superman uh, for tax reasons. He was a tax tax exile in Spain at the time and Superman had moved from being shot in Italy to the UK because Marlon Brando refused to work in Italy. And so then Guy Hamilton was replaced in that movie by Richard Donner. That's by the by. (laughs) But it was around this time when they were looking for a director that a young filmmaker by the name of Steven Spielberg got in touch with Cubby to express his interest in directing a movie he said i called cubby twice and after jaws 1975 which was such a huge success i thought hey people are giving me final cut now so i called up cubby and offered my services but he didn't think i was right for the part then even after close encounters of the third kind came out in 1977 and was a big hit once again i tried to get on a bond film and now they can't afford me so that is a a big um, what if isn't it Mm. Uh, but in December 1975, it was announced that Lewis Gilbert would return to direct his second James Bond film eight years after he had directed You Only Live Twice. And he brought with him the associate producer, William Cartledge, writer Christopher Wood, who he had just worked with on a film called Seven Nights in Japan. Um, and Roger Moore uh, had a lot of praise for Lewis Gilbert. I think he found him a lot more fun to work with than Guy Hamilton. So it was all it was all roses for, for Roger. And I think you can tell there's a better creative atmosphere for Roger on this movie. Definitely. Um, in terms of writing the script, though, oh, who didn't have a go at this? <laughs> it's it's incredible. Um, so Cubby commissioned loads of writers to work on a script. John Landis, Anthony Burgess, Derek Marlowe, Sterling, Siliphant, Ronald Hardy, and Jerry Anderson also apparently provided a film treatment. And he said it was very similar to what actually ended up, what we ended up with. So in terms of the, the different versions, one of them we had um, Tatiana Romanova teaming up with Bond to stop a Spectre hijacking of a submarine. 
um, which was coordinated by Hugo Drax from a base located underneath Loch Ness. Hugo Drax? Mm. Oh. Yeah. Uh, with Anthony Burgess, he created characters from a spy novel he'd written and um, Bond was fighting uh, an organisation in Singapore and uh, they were planning to assassinate the, uh, Queen Elizabeth II by bombing Sydney Opera House. One of the writers of the Anthony Burgess Foundation, uh, he he said it was an outrageous medley of sadism, hypnosis, acupuncture, and international terrorism. Wasn't <laughs> um, that the one that he was going to kidnap the Pope in it as well? We did an episode with about Burgess, didn't we? We did, yes. Yeah. Um, but that was that was John Landis who did that ah. uh, about the kidnapping of the Pope. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, everyone's had a go. There's all different ideas flying around, but he, he did work in the same office, so they were probably back and forth thing. Right. Then Richard Maybaum, he put in an initial draft, and he tried to incorporate all those other ideas, and uh, as you can imagine, you know, proved difficult. It, it, was, it showed like an alliance of different, these different terrorists coming together, um, and they were planning to attack Spectre's headquarters, um, and getting rid of Blofeld, basically. Um, they were planning to then attack, uh, nuclear attacks on the world's petrol res- reservoirs, and that would make way for a new world order. Um, even Maybaum was was scouting locations in Budapest for this uh, concept that he'd, he'd come up with. But Cubby thought it was uh, too political and not, not the sort of thing they do with a Bond film. So when Gilbert comes on board, Lewis Gilbert brings in, like you said, Christopher Wood, and he wanted to fix what he thought was they were doing wrong with Roger Moore. Um, they thought they were focusing too much on the way Connery played him, and he wanted to make him, he said he wants to make him very English, very smooth, good sense of humour. Cubby asked Christopher Wood to create a villain with metal teeth based on horror the character in Fleming's novel, and this obviously becomes Jaws. So Cubby agrees to these these changes and, and Christopher Wood's scripts, um, but another klaxon, Kevin McClory pops his head up because there were more complications. So obviously Thunderball that came out in 1965, McClory had set up two film companies and uh, the 10 years, remember that they had 10 years where he wasn't allowed to make another version. And that had expired since. So he was actually developing um, Warhead at this time. If you remember, we talked about this in the McClory episode and the Connery episode. Yeah, so um, collaboration with Connery and Len Dayton. But Kevin McClory found out that they wanted to use Spectre in this version, which, of course, he had claims to have worked on when when working with Ian Fleming, you know, and Jack Whittingham uh, on their attempt at the very first version of Thunderball. So McClory files an injunction against Eon uh, regarding copyright infringement. So they get this one cleaned up pretty quickly. I mean, they've seen how it's gone in the past. Um, so yeah, to stop it going in any longer, they removed all references to Blofeld, all references to Spectre from that script. And then in uh, June 1976... Kevin McClory actually gets the sole rights to Spectre and Blofeld. Yeah, wow, what a journey. Um, <laughs> but, but then we um, 
Tom Mankiewicz also claims that he was brought on to do a rewrite of the script, but he didn't receive credit because had they have given the credit, then uh, more tax, by the way, coming right up. Yeah. He, they wouldn't have been able to get the ED levy right. uh, assistance uh, because it needs. You can't have a, no, a certain number of non-British people working on it. Yeah, there we go. Finally, they've hammered out a script. <laughs> they've got there in the end. And it's interesting, I seem to remember, this is the one where they couldn't use any of the... Fleming had forbidden them from using any of the plot, Mm. hadn't they? Yeah. Um, So that's why they were sort of scratching around to try and nail this one. Yeah. It's interesting as well. I was looking at some of the earlier scripts today, and there's one where they've literally crossed out Sandor saying, yes, something, 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 to number one, and then changed it to Stromberg. Like, it was crossed out in the script. So there was obviously Blofeld references for a mm. very long time in production until it was taken out. Yeah, he might as well be Blofeld, haven't he? Yeah. I mean, it's when you when you put Lewis Gilbert into the frame as well you, and you put this side by side with You Only Live Twice, you can see that there are a lot of similarities between that film and this film. You know, you've got the big uh, ship swallowing up the smaller things. You've got the captured crew... You've got like the lair at the end. It's all very. Um, I mean, Lewis Gilbert even says, you know, it's a, it's very much a uh, uh, copy and paste, copy and paste job. Yeah, but um, but for once, you know, it actually works. I think in this case, I, I appreciate that both villain lairs have tram systems. Well, it's the it's the monorail, isn't it? Apparently, that's what they call the, the Lewis Gilbert trilogy, the monorail trilogy, because everyone has a villain lair with a monorail in it. It just goes to show that crime pays because they have a better transport infrastructure than London does. <laughs> Very much so. Well, the next thing to talk about is the key crew. That's what I was tasked with in this next section. And I feel like before I talk about the key crew, I have to acknowledge the key crews of all of the HMS Fearless to USS Wayne, HMS Ranger and the Potemkin, all involved, and I suppose the Lipperus too, they are certainly the key crews of this film. But uh, I know what you really wanted me to talk about, boys. So, yeah, I mean, firstly, the cinematographer of this film uh, is uh, Claude Renoir, I believe it's pronounced. But he first foray into Bond, but he's best known for stuff like Barbarella uh, from 68, Cleopatra from 63. Uh, but he'd been making films all the way back to the 1930s. So um, I'm not quite sure how that connection came around. I'm not sure if that's from the Lewis Gilbert or he was attached before. I couldn't find anything on that. Do you know anything about that, boys? I don't know where, where the link from, from Claude Renoir came in. I'm sure one of our listeners can let us know. Please do. Um, and uh, speaking of first-timers, uh, Marvin Hamlish comes in and does a wonderful score for the film, which I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit later on in the episode. And I'm sure you've spoken about him before, but it does earn this film an Oscar nomination for the music, so well done him. John Glenn is back we mentioned him already it's his second to last time in the editor chair he'll be back for moonraker and then of course he goes on to be a director but glenn also works as a second unit director on the film alongside ernest day uh, who actually worked on the man with the golden gun uh, from second unit as well and he would keep staying through with bond through to moonraker actually um moving on a couple of familiar names you may already know peter lamont's back with art direction you've spoken about him before Ken Adams is back for production design. You've also spoken about him before. And last but not least, the great Bob Simmons is taking care of stunt coordination on the film. Quite the, uh, the who's who of the you know, United Artists Eon team. It's the, they're the go-tos, I think, at this point, really. 
Yeah, it's just John Barry that's missing, isn't it? Um, it? It is really a who's who. And this is why we always talk about this one as being like one of the most important films. It's the one where, uh, you know, you trace it right back from the beginning and then right back to, right to the, uh, the most recent films. They all sort of come back to, to Spy Who Loved Me, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the cast, Roger Moore is back to play 007 for the third time in his th- three-film contract. Um, but this film, more than his previous two, are much more tooled for his personal style, um, thanks to Lewis Gilbert, who sort of recognised his talents in the movie. Um, but it was the first film that Roger Moore got to work with uh, Lewis Gilbert and Ken Adam. So this is the first Ken Adam uh, film that Roger's worked on. I think Ken Adam is the um, is the sort of the the hero of this movie. His work on this movie is is incredible. Yeah, and, and and this one also, Roger gets to work directly with Morris Binder as well because he becomes the first James Bond to appear in the titles as well. So Roger's, uh, yeah, he's he's right in the mix of it this time. Um, but uh, he had uh, concerns about the script initially. He said in his autobiography, I expressed my concerns to Lewis about early drafts of the script. The problem was I thought that there was too much emphasis was placed on the extravagant and spectacular, the size of everything, the outlandish villainous plans and the gadgets without too much thought to the dialogue. I knew the character by now and I knew what he would and wouldn't say. Lewis looked at me and said, well, dear, in his typically vague manner, I'm sure we can make something up and improve it on it in on the day. Um, so that was the sort of a relationship that they had. I think he was trusted by Lewis Gilbert to do his thing. And he did. Unfortunately, Roger fell ill with shingles while shooting and was sent home to rest by doctors, which is why in the photos, of harold wilson opening the 007 stage you see roger wearing these big dark glasses and that's disguise his big swollen face um and this was roger's favorite bond film that he ever made he said the film was lighter than my previous two bond efforts i think largely due to lewis wanting to have fun with it all and make it slightly ridiculous a man with a giant with steel teeth for instance it suited my style and persona and i think i really settled into the role with this film it's certainly my favorite of the bonds i made and that is something he would say for the rest of his life so this certainly was a big big movie for him lois maxwell returned as money penny for the 10th time it's quite a brief appearance from her um he she thought that lewis gilbert didn't really like money penny um he she said that she thought he thought she was a bit of a secretary and found that her scenes had been reduced um so that's a shame uh desmond llewellyn is back as q for the eighth time and he gets to travel to sardinia uh, as field q field q field q um we get bernard lee back as an m for the 10th time he's in scotland and then in egypt i like that stuff in egypt um and then we've got Walter Gotel returning to the series. He'd appeared as Morzeni in From Russia With Love, uh, but he's back now as Gogol, his first of his many appearances, six appearances in total as the KGB general. And then we've got some other good returning people. We've talked about these a lot in the past, so I'll just brush over these. But we've got George Baker, who is in um, this film as Captain Benson. He'd been in You Only Live Twice and as Hilary Bray in On A Majesty's Secret Service. Shane Rimmer is back he had appeared as a launch commander in you only live twice and was a voice in live and let die but he's got his biggest role in this one as commander carter one of the submarine captains and then we've got uh, recurring people uh, which we might mention as well under allies but jeffrey keen and robert brown in their first appearances as freddie gray and admiral hargreaves um oh and then one more um, returning person nadim sawala as fakesh um and they later returned in uh, the living daylights so that's it. That's the returning cast and also some first appearances of regular cast. 
Yeah, so in terms of the new cast, um, with Bond Girls, we have, starting right from the beginning, we've got Sue Vanna as Log Cabin Girl. Now, she's the Russian agent who sets the trap for Bond in the pre-title sequence. Um, we've also got Carolyn Monroe as Naomi, um, Stromberg's personal pilot. Her casting was actually um, due to an advert campaign she had made. And um, if you see the adverts, you can tell she's already got the, the Bond girl look. Um, so it didn't take much of a leap to imagine her doing that. But she was dubbed by Barbara Jefford, who I believe we've talked about, haven't we? Oh, I don't know if the name rings a bell. She, she's done other dubbing there, hasn't she? Yeah, she dubbed Daniela Bianchi, which is probably where we talked about right. her. Um, and then, of course, we have Barbara Bach as Anya Amasova, who is a KGB agent, triple X. And um, she was only cast four days before shooting began. And... Um, she performed her audition and she thought she was only going for a supporting role. Um, but uh, one of the initial casting ideas for the character was actress Lois Childs, who Lewis Gilbert said, we were told by her agent that she'd retired. So they didn't bother going down that route. But uh, Cubby had other ideas anyway. And he said, high-priced ladies would contribute no more than his new discovery, New Yorker Barbara Buck would so that's what he said and um she'd only previously appeared in uh foreign language films and this is her first english speaking role in an english language film um but lewis gilbert says about uh the the shooting and and different takes she said she didn't always like it when i had to do many takes but i remember i would tell her believe me you'll thank me when you see the film at the premiere and she did so obviously he really worked hard to get his, you know, the best performance out of out of her, and um, yeah, she's one of the most memorable Bond girls, isn't she? So yeah, he he really did well with that. Well, it's a good twist on the on the concept, isn't it? I think with her being yeah. a rival agent, I think that's um, that's that's what sets Triple uh, X apart. Mm-hmm. She was like well, on, on one of our very first episodes, wasn't she? I seem to remember we did. Uh, yeah, in fact, it was on the very first episode, perhaps. But um, yeah, there's a there's a. There's a story I was reading earlier about her, and uh, I didn't, I haven't put it in my notes about Egypt, which we'll get to, but it actually fits right now because they were d- doing a shot where uh, I believe Bond and Anya walk off into the distance, and Roger thought he'll ruin a shot, so he undid his his trousers, and uh, as they're walking away, his trousers slowly, slowly slid down, uh, but he just kept playing straight, and she didn't notice for a while, and eventually they went off shot and yelled cut, and then she realised that his trousers were around his waist, and just apparently rolled her eyes. Didn't quite get the humour, unfortunately, but uh, I think ev- apparently everyone else had a jolly good laugh about it. Ah, oh, classic Roger. Uh, well, that comes to me now to talk about the dastardly villains. Now, a lot of these, once again, have been covered on James Bond A to Z, so I won't uh, belay the point, but here we go. Kurt Jurgens, who, also known as Kurt Jurgens, is his actual name, part, plays uh, Carl Stromberg. And I will just note, the Stromberg logo, I might bring it up later, but uh, it get rest, gets referenced in another Bond film that I've also been on this show about. So we'll come back to that. I'll leave that little thought in your heads. Now, uh, Lewis Gilbert had actually worked with Kurt back in 1959's Ferry to Hong Kong about a, a cop that's down on his luck. Um... Uh, which also starred, incidentally, Casino Royale 67 alumni, Mr. Orson Welles. 
Uh, and he also speaks five languages, which is four and a half more than me. Next up, we have Jaws, played by Richard Keel. Now, you've featured Jaws before, so I just found a nice little quote from Roger Moore all about Richard, and he says, You know, the remarkable thing about Richard, he's been acting for many, many years, and he's never had a small part. (laughs) That's the sort of stuff we expect from Sir Roger Moore, everyone. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Now, in terms of villains, there's a couple of smaller ones. I mentioned... Sandal earlier played by Milton Reed. He's actually cropped up in Bond before. He was in Doctor No in the background and also in, once again, Casino Royale 67. And Sergei Barsov played by Michael Billington. Now he's barely in the film, but uh, that guy has been... He has, according to my notes, auditioned for Bond more times than any other person. A grand total mm-hmm. of five different times. Uh, so just if you're thinking about what could have been in the Bond universe, we could be talking a lot more about Michael Billington. I mean, we've talked we, about him a lot as well. <laughs> oh, right. OK, there you go. Uh, what, what Bond film would you like to have seen Michael Billington in, gents? Octopussy. I'll take him in Octopussy. I'll take anything other than Octopussy. <laughs> <laughs> I think a view to a kill would have been good. Just let him have one. Just do view to a kill. Yeah, those last couple of Roger ones. Yeah, I think you could have Michael in there. He's a very a virile mm. young man. And I'm, yeah. I'm moaning I think, I think about. Go on. They basically just kept Billington around the office to scare Roger into signing a new contract. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's how it worked. <laughs> make us get Michael. Okay, <laughs> I'll take the millions. All right. Uh, yeah, but that is the villains. I will then pass over for the allies. Yes, so as mentioned, Jeffrey Keane and Robert Brown make their first appearances as Freddie Gray and Admiral Hargreaves. We've covered both of these characters very recently in the past but but uh, worth noting for Jeffrey Keane as Freddie Gray he gets to ask, uh, ask the immortal line Bond what do you think you're doing to which the reply is keeping the British end up so um, yeah, that's all that there is to say about him you've got Edward D'Souza as Sheikh Hussein the Arab Sheikh and old friend of Bond um, and I love this character I always forget that he's in it and then when he appears it's a lovely uh, it's a lovely touch um, now D'Souza was a, a rather trained actor He'd appeared in the past with Roger uh, in The Saint, obviously. Um, but Edward D'Souza had had lots of lots of credits to his name, including Doctor Who, uh, The Avengers, Rumpole of the Bailey, The Sweeney, Sapphire and Steel. And he's even been in Coronation Street. And he's still going today. He's 90. So, uh, yeah, that's Edward D'Souza as Sheikh Hussein. Then we've got Brian Marshall as Commander Ta- uh, Talbot. He's the commanding officer of the HMS Ranger. Um and he as uh, he's another rather trained actor who'd been in the same with Roger um, and Brian Marshall. Um, he's also been in Quite a Mass in the Pit uh, and the Witches. Um, and he spent a lot of his uh, he's actually was in Long Good Friday as well. But late in his later life, he moved to Australia and um, appeared in Neighbours, Flying Doctors and Home and Away. But he sadly died in 1981. And then obviously the other uh, allies to talk about, George Baker as Captain Benson and then Shane Rimmer as Commander Carter. So these are all sort of the Navy uh, officers that sort of... It's quite a ne- Navy-heavy movie, actually, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's all the key people gathered together. Um, let's kick things off at the production stage. Absolutely, and where better to start than Mount Asgard for the pre-title sequence. Now, Michael Wilson has been brought on board and he had seen an advert in Playboy 
for Canadian Club Whiskey and it showed a skier leaping off Mount Asgard. So he informed Cubby. Cubby loved it, thought, well, this is this is Bondian. This is going to work great. So it transpired that Rick Sylvester was the skier in this advert. So they got in contact and they met with him. And uh, they were talked about it and they were like, you can do it. Yeah, said he could do it. And John Glenn had said they talked about doing that sort of thing at the uh, Lauter Brunnen Valley, which is a a 200 foot 200 foot drop that they used in on a Majesty's Secret Service. But they said that wasn't enough. They wanted to go bigger than that. So Cubby said that um, they they returned to basically where the advert was. They said, why not do it literally where it was? That's what I want to see. Let's let's do it. And uh, yeah, he said he found the special place where we would do it, which was up in Baffin Island in Canada. John Glenn said it was not easy to get there. Mount Asgard was 5,800 feet of vertical cliff face, which is big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they went to Canada. They shot the test footage um, to try and see if it was feasible, if it could be done, which that, that, that alone, it cost $250,000 for few for for the few seconds that we see on screen, you know, um, so they that they worked that out. It was going to cost that much. Showed it to Cubby, and uh, he he didn't even bat an eyelid. You know, he he was so yeah that we want to do this that he just looked it looked him in the eyes. They were all nervous about whether he was going to say. And he just went do it, and that was it. So they'd got permission to to actually go and work out how to do it and. Yeah, Rick Sylvester, he um, he said, unlike El Capitan, I wasn't familiar with the location. Asgard was more of an unknown quantity. And despite what I was depicted in and thus implied by the Canadian club ad, due to certain interesting circumstances, I had not previously skied off of it. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. So he's got all this way. You know, he's committed to doing it now. And he's just revealed that he's never done it. Um John Glenn said he didn't tell us at this stage that he hadn't actually performed the stunt, but afterwards he confided in me. It was really a bit of a gamble. So, I mean... <laughs> Squeaky bum time. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So the crew, they go up to a place called Pangnerting. This is uh, an Inuit settlement on Baffin Island. Now, they had to spend two weeks waiting for the conditions to be right for the to do it safely and to get the shot um and basically the first week was just constant rain um rick sylvester said it was persisting day after day each chopper um recce flight returned with a report of no go phone calls started coming in from the bond production headquarters in london has he done it yet so obviously with it costing so much money they're really starting to you know worry about this uh, and if it was ever going to get done so um yeah they they got all the cameras the cameramen they were in position you know pretty much just waiting to to be able to do this shot but it was all planned it was all rehearsed and rick said i got myself together i got my shoot on and i was asked if i was ready with mixed feelings and un- unable to come up with a reason not to i answered yes Next, it was communicated to me that the cameras were rolling. Film's expensive. That was it. I went. So, yeah, they'd waited two weeks. 
his time had finally come. And John Glenn only gave Rick Sylvester one instruction. He said, don't forget, Rick, you are James Bond. And then he put the red, red, his red flag in the snow and that was it, Rick. That was his, his signal to get down the mountain. So they shot it, six, six cameras, they shot it. And uh, five of them failed to capture the shot. <laughs> but there was one. They 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 got the, they got the shot they wanted. It tracked him all the way down, and um, yeah, he Rick Sylvester said that when he actually landed, um, well, Cubby said that when when he landed, all of a sudden the weather turned and snow and sleet came in. So basically, that window of opportunity was it. One you know, million, for that yeah. it was it was a really tiny window. Um, Cubby said they got the crew out by helicopter but most of the equipment was left up there they got cameras out but tripods and all the heavy less important equipment was still up there after a year so you know it, it's an um, it is unbelievable that it happened at all and of course you know it's one of the most memorable pre-title scenes of a Bond film um, and I think if, if you remember when the shoot opens um, this one of the skis nearly hits it as well. It does hit it, I uh, think, doesn't it? Just slightly grazing. It's it. yeah, but that could have been a lot worse had that have had hit, hit it, you know, properly. But test screenings when they showed it and uh, the parachute reveals the Union flag, you know, it got big cheers. So you know they knew it was a great success. But yeah, incredible stunt. Yeah, you know, I think that was a Lewis Gilbert touch. The uh, the, the the flag. I seem to remember mm-hmm. hearing on the commentary. Um, yeah, and also uh, the sort of the MVP of the scene is that Willy Bogner ski suit that Driver Jamal wears in it as well. Um, yeah, whoever... and, and not only that, the the silence they they let play out. Yeah, it's such a key. It really it. is. It really is. Well, you you just think. I mean, it's best to just talk about it for a second because we won't come back to it really. You think about the iconography of Bond and the moments that had occurred so far before this point. I'd say you've maybe got. Ursula Andrews coming out of the sea, the laser in Goldfinger, and this. Mm. These are the ones that are like, there's pairs of socks being made right now for 20 quid a pop with this parachute on it. <laughs> it's a very important yeah. moment. Yeah. And I yeah. moan about it because I bought those socks. <laughs> the socks are nice. Um, I want to give a shout out as well to our listener, Jack McMorrow, who's got the snow globe. Have you seen the snow globe that's got it on? No. Oh no. Yeah, you can buy so you can buy a snow globe that's got the um I'll just hold it up there, you can't really uh and it's got the uh the parachute in it and he, he sent us a picture of that and I just I, I need it in my life basically. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and it's an incredible stunt and it, it actually just tops off a really brilliant uh pre title sequence. There's a lot to the pre title sequence, but the mm. bit that you remember is that, isn't it? Um yeah. and obviously immortalised by Alan Partridge. So let me bang on about all the time. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> He puts on his underpants and his ski suit and he gets on his skis and he starts skiing and he's being chased by these Russian shits in black jumpsuits with lemon piping. And, uh, and he's just skiing along like that and, and they start shooting at him and he goes, right, I've had enough of that, just stop it! And he, and he turns around with his gun and then he does a backward somersault off this ramp and he, he lands on his feet. Uh, I'm not sure why, but he's not showing off. And, and then he, and he goes over a cliff and he's falling and you think, oh, God, James Bond's going to die! He's going to die! But then, at the last minute... He pulls a ripcord, right? And a, a parachute comes out, and it's got a Union Jack Michael! on it. Michael! Michael! 
Uh, but from one epic set piece to another, Scott. Yes, quite. Well, I mean, I've got a few things to balance here. Um, talking about sort of production that happened in, on Pinewood in the UK and some other bits and bobs. Now, uh, production at Pinewood began after this uh, shooting on the mountain because that actually was done way way ahead of time in pre-production. But full production started in Pinewood on the 31st of August 1976 where they were filming scenes with Gogol and, and M's offices. There was also some second unit stuff going on in, with the fight sequence between Bond and Jaws being done around about the same time. And I, I read a little quote saying they were trying to invoke the feel of, of Connery and Red Grant's train fight, trying to get that claustrophobic feel. Bond and spy movies in general tend to like trains for some reason. I'm not quite sure what the connection is there. Maybe the mysteriousness of the Orient Express, that sort of thing. And uh, no one likes being stuck on trains at rush hour. So imagine having Jaws next to you. That's not going to be a fun journey. Um, but moving on from there, lots of internal shots are done, like sets were done on Pinewood. So you've got things like the club when they're in Egypt, it's all done in, in Pinewood. Uh, you've also got Stromberg's office. Uh, and Atlantis is also at Pinewood. And that actually was one of Roger Moore's injuries of two that I've got listed was on that set um, where you've got the final shootout between the two of them at the table. And it was agreed that, um, well, basically Roger Moore had to move out the way of Stromberg's shot, but they said, oh, I, I need to like move last second, otherwise it wouldn't be very believable. So, like, okay, Roger, you, you go and do it. But they ended up triggering an explosion far too early, and he ended up with a ton of shrapnel on his backside. Uh, he spoke about that quite a lot on TV afterwards. I was quite proud of it, actually. Uh, there's a fun interview of him talking about the uh, the holes in his bum. I was like, okay, that's a, that's a very Roger line for you right there. Where's the sequence, if you remember, where I my final confrontation with Kurt Jürgen Stromberg, mm. and he fires a projectile underneath under the, the table, table yeah. and the chair blows up. Well, unfortunately, the chair blew up before I got out of it. And that did quite a lot of damage to my rear end. That was your own, <clears throat> very own rear end, not a it standard. Was, it was my own rear end, mm. and it had some nasty holes burned in it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I'll come back to the UK in a second, but there's a logistical issue here 
that we need to talk about, and that is the super tankers. Now, it's interesting, the last time I was on this show was the License to Kill episode because they didn't film in the Pinewood. They had to leave and shoot elsewhere. They actually did do some Pinewood stuff, but nonetheless, this film had such a large scope that they weren't able to shoot it in Pinewood. So if we go back a little bit, obviously they wanted to do this, the, the sort of submarine shot, the super tanker, uh, the Lippera set, basically. Um, and what they found was they couldn't get it all into one shot. And they um, there was talk of hiring a, a tanker to use, um, like a, submarine, a, a tanker from Shell, and they said it would be free, but they had to pay for insurance. And that was apparently £60,000 per day. And uh, I think there's a quote saying, even in bond money, that's a bit too much. That's fair enough, I think. So they're like, we can't do that. We're going to have to do it in miniature. So they decide they want to do it in miniature. But that's also a problem, because how on earth are you going to fit a miniature into Pinewood? You can't. So what's the next best thing? Let's build our own place. So... They decide to basically build what we now know as the 007 stage. Uh, I think it was actually christened as that, so I shouldn't have really said it that way. But um, yeah, everyone goes back to the drawing board. They redesign everything. Ken Adams redesigned stuff. The miniatures um, from model maker Derek Meddings is done for the set as well. Um, and they decide to do the, the submarines at two-thirds scale. And now these submarines are actually a fun little factoid. They'll be used again in the shot if you think of Roger um, in the, his naval outfit being briefed and he's walking down by the bay. Those are actually the same ones that are in the tanker being reused. There's nothing actually below the water. It's basically just like nothing. It's just held up and floating. Enough to keep those, those men on top, but they reused the set. They had to move it away from obviously set 007 stage. That's another shot they did in the UK. But... Um, the set they end up doing, the, the 007 stage, it's uh, the largest soundstage in Europe. I'm not sure if it still holds that title, but it certainly had it at the time. Um, but yes, yeah, so it, it was so big, it was able to hold the Super Tanker set and I think some of the Atlantis set was there as well. And that was opened officially on the 5th of December 1976. And that actually harkens back to the little factoid you were saying earlier, Tom with a former Prime Minister on set and Roger Moore and his dark glasses. They also have um, Barbara back in full Major Anya Amasova costume because there were some Russian dignitaries that were invited and they wanted to have a little <laughs> giggle about that. Um, well, it didn't, it didn't start any wars, so I appreciate that. Um, weirdly, the US and UK Navy wanted nothing to do with the production. So I, I found that weird. you think they'd be clamouring to get involved, which is one of the reasons why they had to sort of reuse those submarines on the water later on and uh, speaking of injuries i mentioned it earlier another injury that happened on this set because you've actually behind the super tanker room you've got the the big globe and sort of the office that, that they're working in sort of the stationary thing there's a set where that actually gets there's a moment where they get set on fire in the film and that melted onto a bunch of extras and they got covered in molten plastic and uh, all received several burns uh, it's definitely I mean, it's not quite the uh the large fire explosion from license to kill but uh I'm, I'm sure those extras probably remember their time underneath stromberg's ball but there you have it i mean i could go on about 007 stage you know you've got uh, there was a chap who was i forget the name of the director now but was involved in helping with the lighting of that room stanley kubrick director. kubrick thank you that was it as well yeah. there's so much that went into it um 
but yeah it, it's such a bond thing to go hey we can't fit these uh these sets in let's make a bigger set and call it our own thing oh, i think yeah. what makes it unique is the fact that, that you can have water in the bottom of it as well as mm-hmm. is that right brendan mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that it's that it's water it's a water pit as well as being a sound stage and um yeah i think that makes it quite unique I'd well, it has like height and depth as well because yeah. I, I think I, I was listening to something Lewis Gilbert was saying where they had a problem with You Only Live Twice because the volcano, whilst it was big, they had to shoot a different set for them coming into the volcano because it was just, they couldn't they have the roof. The, they had to set the whole roof off, didn't they, to do exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. So this stage gave them both width, height and depth to do everything they wanted, including the water. Yeah. And you see every inch of it on screen, don't you? It really is money well spent, I think. Yeah. Um, right, so, so, so to Sardinia in October, the, after shooting at Pinewood, they, the crew moved to the Mediterranean island uh, for the first part of their location shooting. Um, and this is for the scenes where Stromberg's Atlantis is moored off the coast. Um, and all of Bond's sort of adventures take place in a place called Costa Smeralda, which is a region in the northeast of Sardinia. Um, so they meet Q at the port of Palau. And then Bond and Amasova drive to the Hotel Cala de Volpe um, with the, in the White Lotus Esprit, um, where Bond then, and Amasova then check in under the name of Sterling. Um, and the hotel suite, here's a nice bit of trivia for you. The hotel suite that they stay in is actually the bar of the hotel. So although you can't stay in the same room that Roger does, you can have a drink in the hotel room that they stay in because it's mm. really a bar. I there noted the name of the hotel, the Volpe thing. Now, yes. That's, I assume that's... Uh, a name that the film gave it that's not the actual hotel's name i think it is called the hotel cala de volpe huh yeah okay um so yeah so this is where the second unit led by john glenn filmed also the uh, the the land section of the lotus esprit chase um uh, the road chase was shot on a stretch of the coast road at a place called vista point and then on a piazza at san pantaleone to the uh, southwest now, the Lotus Esprit, we did an episode on that, so you can go back to that. I think we did it under L for Lotus, but um, uh, you'll have to go back and look at that. But we did a whole episode on how that car was built and how they found it and blah, blah, blah. So that's a really interesting story. But what I'll tell you a little bit now is about the driving of the car itself. So a guy called Roger Becker, who was the Lotus Director of Vehicle Engineering, was on hand for technical support while they had the Lotus on location. And the stuntman that they had employed to drive the car um, couldn't actually get the Esprit to look dramatic enough and fast enough for the cameras. He was just struggling to make it look um, interesting because it was a really good, gri- well-gripped car, like it would drive really nicely on the road. Um, but Roger Becker, um, he he basically stepped in to help because what, what happened one day is they asked him to uh, park the car somewhere or to drive the car somewhere, and he says... Uh, I drove it as it was natural for me. I screamed up the road and the assistant directors were jumping up and down and yelling. That's how we want it. Why can't we get him to do the driving? And so he did the driving in the film. Um, but there is one scene where the um, where Roger ended up putting, not Roger more, Roger Becker. He put the, the Esprit into a ditch by accident by the side of the road. And this was because in the chase sequence, you've got the bit where Bond activates the spray of cement out of the car. Cement was actually porridge. And that covers the the um, the cars. Uh, it, it covers uh, Jaws's car, but it also covers um, the, the Esprit's car. So they they both the cars end up driving backwards. Um, and so 
they were driving this car backwards with Becca dressed as Roger Moore um, and he was having to sort of just rely on his mirrors. Um, but yeah, basically he was driving it along this twisty sort of mountain road and because he was driving it backwards dressed as Roger Moore, it just span off and ended up in a ditch. Uh, and there's photos of that as well you can see online. But you've got the climax of this sequence where the car, the Esprit jumps off the jetty to evade, evade the helicopter um, and to launch the Esprit into the sea. It was just a, a shell on wheels. They used an air cannon. But it was so powerful that the force blew part of the front body shell off the Esprit. So to make it look right in the film, they shoot an additional scene where Roger uh, James Bond actually damages the car so that when it shoots off into the air, that damage has already been shown in the movie. If that makes sense. Um, so this point uh, where they sh where the, where they jumped off is a place called Lysia di Vaccio, and it um, then the car then comes ashore later um, after the underwater sequence at a place called Capriciola Capriccioli in Sardinia. Apologies for my pronunciation. And obviously you've got the the gag where Roger winds down the window and drops the fish out of the window. Um, they, funnily, they had a journalist on set watching that scene being filmed and Cubby Broccoli was there saying, don't worry, that stupid gag isn't going to be in the final movie. It's just Roger messing around. But actually, it was in the final movie. But this scene, if you remember, introduced the tipsy tourist to the series in his first of three appearances in the Bond films. So you'll see him in this, Moonraker, and For Your Eyes Only. He's the guy drinking and then he sort of looks at his bottle uh, do I really believe this is happening? So that's quite a funny little running joke. And that's he he's a, uh, a played by the same actor, a guy called Victor Tujansky. He's actually a Russian filmmaker who sort of worked in Italy um, and was then just around when they shot these other scenes. So he was there um, and they, they included him. And then one more thing to mention about Sardinia. This is where you get the wet bike as well. So this is this is makes its movie debut uh, in the film and its designer Nelson Tyler lent them a prototype for the production. And Roger would practice it, uh, practice riding it up and down the beach in his trunks. So uh, that's quite a vision for you. So uh, in October, the second unit, they travelled to uh, Nassau to film those underwater sequences for the Lotus. So obviously they've got all the other shots from Sardinia. But when we see it go underwater, they needed uh, seven different models of the car to film the transformation. So every transformation you see underwater is a different car that's been adapted to be able to do that, do that transition. Um, and you know, once edited, it looks great. Um, also, when, after we've seen it propelled into the water, as soon as it goes in the water, that's a model, a, another seamless edit. Um, so they used different, uh, they used full size body shells um to show the actual car to submer submersible transition there. And um, the air bubbles that you see, they were just Alka-Seltzer tablets to create that. Um, Is that right? The air yeah. Wow. It's um, a good trick. In in what is another, you know, put that all together, you know, the Lotus flying into there, going underwater and then coming back out of water. Another iconic scene, isn't it? You just believe um, it, don't you? Yeah. And um, obviously you, you brushed over how Lotus got involved, but I think it's worth mentioning again for people who don't listen to other episodes um, that, that Don McLaurin, uh, who was the head of PR at Lotus, and he'd heard that Eon were looking for a new Bond car. So he just drove the prototype Esprit 
with all the Lotus Lotus branding, and he just parked it outside the email offices at Pinewood and just left it there. Um, and obviously, people were walking past it all day long. And so Eon did, they asked Lotus if they could borrow both of the prototypes for filming. And what happened, what transpired is this iconic scene. I think one of the ones they used was belonged to the owner of Lotus or something, or the head of the company as well, didn't it? Didn't it? It did, yeah, and you know he was delighted that they asked him, you know, more it's than an, happy to to oblige. It's an inspired bit of marketing, mm. and I think they painted it white to suit the so it would look better underwater as well, didn't they? It wasn't yeah. white originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great story. Yeah, sorry, Brendan, I shouldn't have brushed over it. Coffee, medium sweet, two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? Well, that leaves Egypt. Now, there's basically three key elements of the shoot in Egypt. There's a couple of little incidental shots as well, but the main things in the film is Bond at the pyramids, the fight with Jaws at the Karnak Temple, and the interrogation of Sandor uh, on top of the British Museum in Cairo, I might add. Um, I've got four stories, so I'm going to run us through the stories. And and it's where a lot of the sort of um, funny stories about this film come from is all the stuff in Egypt. So the first one is food. It's food-related, which is one of my favourite things, is food. Now, <laughs> I've read a, different, a few different reports. Apparently, the crew didn't much like Egyptian food. It's the 1970s. People haven't travelled too much. I understand this. Uh, Egyptian food's actually really lovely. Um, but they were grumbling about food. And um, so what happened was Cubby organised for a truckload of British food to be shipped over to Egypt. Now, that's a long haul, by the way. That's quite a journey. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I wonder what was in that van. I bet it's all just pork pies. It's, yeah, and sausage and mash. <laughs> yeah. Well, babies don't go off, which is what happened. Unfortunately, the refrigerator broke down and everything was lost inside. Now, Cubby got the call apparently quite early in the day that this had happened, and he knew that there would be a revolt on his hands if he didn't feed his team because they were already a bit unhappy by this point. They were a few weeks into the shoot. So he managed to scrounge up a bunch of pots and pans, some spaghetti, some pasta sauce, and some meat to make meatballs. And he cooked for about 100 people, including like primary cast like Roger Moore, spaghetti and meatballs for the whole team. Um, someone was quoted as saying it's Cubby's finest moment on the Bond films. I'm not sure if that's quite correct. I think he's done a few things. But, you know, he must cook a mean spaghetti and meatballs, guys. Cubby's Meatballs is where it's at. But, yeah, credit to the guy for stepping up because you don't want an unhappy crew, especially in the heat of Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. There's some great photos of that where he's serving it up, isn't there? Have you seen yeah. those? Yeah, and, and Roger's tra- serving it too as well. Yeah, they mm. painted Trattoria broccoli on the wall behind him as well yeah apparently it's still there in that that restaurant i've i've been told reliably but uh i'm not going to go out and check so i won't check my source on that one (laughs) another fun little story is from the bond and jaws and anya fight 
at the Karnak Temple. Now they had a sort of an Egyptian liaison from the government there on set throughout the whole shoot in Egypt just to make sure everything was above board. Now they knew they had a scene coming up where the scaffolding would fall down because um, Roger pulls out the a, a little piece of uh, the scaffolding basically and they knew they had to say the line Egyptian builders you know just to sort of you know rib on the Egyptians but they didn't want to say it in front of the liaison who hadn't read the script so um they basically said uh, Roger said I'll mouth it don't worry and then we can do it in post back in Pinewood so they, they shoot it he mouths it and then the sound guy comes bolting up and says I didn't get the shot to which apparently Roger and Lewis both turned around and said shut up so I, I would love to have been there for that moment. Um, now, keen viewers will notice there's a shot of Bond watching the pyramids. I think it's Jaws walking towards the pyramids. And that's a composite of about four different things pieced together because they realized they didn't do a shot with Roger actually next to the pyramids. So that's actually a cardboard cutout of Roger that was shot later in Pinewood, plus the shots of the pyramids, plus the shots of Jaws walking and like a matte painting as well, all put together in the shot. In 4K, which I watched it for for this, doesn't look as great, but on the Blu-ray, <laughs> it's possible. Um, and the final story I'll leave us with is the interrogation on top of the British Museum in Cairo. Um, uh, Milton Reed, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he's done some stunts in his life. He was happy to do it. Uh, he gets up to the top and he notices that it's five stories. And he says, oh, I don't want to fall five stories. He goes, oh, don't worry, Milton. We've got boxes up for the first three stories. So you've only got to fall two. And he goes, well, I don't really want to fall two stories. Can I fall one? And they go, no, we need you to scream for at least two stories. So uh, that's him falling <laughs> for two stories worth of a scream. So you can measure his time for falling there. <laughs> wow. Poor old Milton Reed. Uh, I, I would I would fall off into boxes and scream. That would be fun to be fair. I I'd sooner that than um than than actually Cubby's food. I, I I'm not too sure. I think people would just want some spaghetti at that point. They would they would eat anything. <laughs> well that wraps up production um on The Spy Who Loved Me. Obviously a mammoth production there, lots of different countries, a lot of work on sets and stuff. And now they need music. So having done the scores for eight of the first nine Bond films, John Barry found himself in Sound the Klaxon, Tax Exile. This film came around uh, and it was living in Mallorca or working in America. So he was unavailable to do the music on The Spy Who Loved Me. Instead, as mentioned before, they turned to Marvin Hamlish, who was at the time the hottest new talent in town uh, in 1976, having won three Oscars in one night. CRH episode for more detail on that. And he also recently won four, four Grammys, a Tony and a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and so when Cubby was looking to replace John Barry, I mean, th there was a one name on the list. It was Marvin Hamlish. And so Marvin, he then went and watched every Bond film to prepare um, for the role. And what he said was, what I realised was, besides the famous theme, there was this bigger than life feeling, always a big symphony orchestra. And I decided basically to follow that scheme. And he started with the title song first. More on that in a second when we talk about the song. Uh, but he decamped to London where the film was in production to write the score in March 1977. Um, and so he said, I always write from the beginning to the end. I'm a big, big believer in pacing. It's almost like architecture. What am I going to write here? Is it going to be fast or slow? And in a Bond film, you've got to keep on moving like a banshee. 
And so, of course, Spiral of Me begins with that epic pre-title sequence. Um, and to score it, you have Bond 77, one of the greatest uses of the Bond theme to date, in my humble opinion. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a stunning piece of work, and, and it probably it's probably my favourite, to be honest. absolutely uh, incredible piece of work and he said I listened to a lot of contemporary stuff and to be honest I stole a little bit from the Bee Gees for Bond 77 <laughs> and he actually even called the Bee Gees lawyer in the 19 uh, lawyer at the time to say I hope you don't sue me because the rhythm track I have to tell you is just pure Bee Gees <laughs> so he was that conscious that he just ripped them off that um, yeah he, he even called their lawyer but interestingly, uh, I learned this from John Burlingame's book on the music of Bond. There's actually less original music in The Spy Who Loved Me than there was in Doctor No. Um, there's only 46 minutes of original music in The Spy Who Loved Me and seven minutes of that wasn't even composed by Marvin Hamlish because you've got moments uh, for, of Laura's theme from Dr. Zhivago is used. You've also got the main theme from Lawrence of Arabia that's used. And then you've also got music from Bach, Mozart and Chopin in the Stromberg scenes as well. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. He also worked with a guy called Paul Buckmaster, who composed the music for the Egyptian Club. And he also composed a theme for Anya that didn't end up in the film. But you can hear it on the soundtrack album. So Hamlish had six to seven weeks to write the score and it was recorded in April 1967 at CTS Studios in Wembley. Um, most of his cues and his music for the film was just basically just fragments of music like minutes two minutes long um, so what he did for the soundtrack album was he reassembled and reconceived a load of it and went back and re-recorded the whole thing at air studios and that's what you hear on the soundtrack album not what you hear in the in the movie um, and one of my favorite pieces of music which i'm sure you'll touch upon in a second is the male choir version of nobody does it better which comes at the end of the movie um, i absolutely love that I think it's such a brilliant touch at the end of that film. Um, but one thing Marvin Hamlish said about uh, it after the after the um, after doing the job, because as we discussed, he was Oscar nominated for it. He said, the fact that I was never asked to do another Bond film escapes me. I don't know what more you can do. You can deliver a score. You can deliver an Oscar nominated song. You can deliver a number two record. And it still isn't good enough. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, really, why he never came back. Well, I guess yeah, the answer to that true. question is... Uh, John Barry. Barry. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, is Barry back for Moonbreaker? Is that him again? No, he's Barry's back for Moonbreaker. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So in terms of the song, um, Marvin Hamlish, you know, he was no fool and he knew that the, the song was important. Um, he said, a lot of stuff I'm going to write will be reflective of what will have been done already. The only thing that will be different will be the actual theme song, which will be more tongue-in-cheek. It's not about the criminal like Goldfinger or a title song like Live and Let Die, which were pompous big songs. This is just the opposite. This song is about Bond himself and it is very sexy and soft and all about how fantastic the hero is. Um, but, you know, it, it's, he still found it daunting and it, it, he, he was anxious to write a song that he thought was different to anything we've seen 
before uh, at this point. Um, yeah, didn't want it to be about the villain and he wanted it to be a song that was truly about Bond. Um, so he consulted his um, lyricist, Carol Bayer Sager, and uh, they had a conversation. Hamlish said, what do you think could be said about James Bond after all these years? And she simply said, nobody does it better. I mean, and, and you know, it's it snowballed from there. So, um, yeah, they, they got to writing the song um, five weeks. It took in all... Um, and they they wrote songs to reflect Bond, you know, how they felt Bond, his virtues were, and Hamlish felt he was very vain. Um, and uh, that, that gave them a reminder of the singer of You're So Vain, who I think I was, it's 1972 that was released, so still relatively fresh in the mind. And uh, they, they thought, who better to sing it than Carly Simon? So, yeah. Carly Simon came in and, and sang it, and uh, it, it, another, another masterclass, you know, another iconic song, a song that transcends Bond, I think, yeah, as well. Absolutely, um, we've got a handful of these from from the Bond, from the twenty five Bond films, but yeah, this is definitely one of those that could could be a success in and of its own, and like you say, the instrumental version as well. It's a masterstroke, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It just plays yeah. into that navy theme, doesn't it? It's just it's like a sea shanty version almost of it. It's like Gilbert yeah. and Sullivan style. It's uh, yeah. yeah. It's one of the only, and I think you sort of touched on it there, Brendan. It's one of the only Bond songs that will naturally feature on the radio, at least mm-hmm. here in the UK. You'll hear this uh, "Diamonds Are Forever" maybe a couple of times, but like it's not. It goes beyond being a good Bond song. It's just a good song. Yeah. yeah, it's that live and let die. Um, diamonds are forever. I think occasionally you get um, maybe die another day. Um, but for me, I think it's yeah, I think it's probably the song I'll have played at my funeral. I think I think it's just an absolutely amazing song. Um, you sure you don't want the, uh, the 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 sea shanty version at the funeral? It might be that version. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a sort of a, a, yeah, a joke. Um, yes, that's the song. Then I mean, I just think it's the greatest Bond theme song of all personally well they spoke about it a little bit in that recent documentary uh, the sound of 007 on amazon on amazon and um you know people were saying they don't like sort of the softer songs but i i would put this song up there with the greats it's maybe not my favorite but i it's one i often find myself singing i i have no problem with the uh you know the the uh the late 70s early 80s songs even though they're all ballads i think they're, they're fun but this is definitely the best but that leads us on to a sequence that ties in to the song beautifully, and that is the title sequence. Now, Maurice Binder is back. Uh, I did the math. This is his eighth title sequence. Uh, if I'm wrong, don't at me. But uh, of the title sequence, I got a quote from Roger Moore that I found quite funny. He said, his, Binder's, titles are well worth seeing, better than my performance. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, I never thought, personally, when I was sort of... I watched this a few times just to sort of get my head around it. I never thought that a trampoline could make someone look cool. But somehow Roger Moore looks even better bouncing around on a trampoline. And I I love that. Um, uh, yeah, the credits feature Bond. They feature a bunch of scantily clad ladies prancing around in silhouette, as they often do in Bond films, against a lovely sort of red, white and blue motif 
going with the Union flag, which we've just seen in the parachute leading into it, all wonderfully tied together. Um, notably, I think at one point, Bond takes out an entire parade of provocatively dressed Russian soldiers with a wave of his hand. I'm sure they found out just what he could do with his little finger. <laughs> Which always brings to mind, I don't know why, but um, Casino Royale 67. I don't know why it makes me, because of the marching band bit, I think, maybe. Yeah, I could definitely see that. It it, it, it plays a little bit uh, fast and loose with a few things in the film. There's not so much of the Russian soldiers particularly, but I, I love seeing the ladies doing the sort of um, the, the, the parallel bars on the Luger. I think that looks great. It's it's. I think, I think one of Maurice Binder's better title sequences, and uh, it complements the song quite well. And also, of course, as you mentioned earlier, it's the first one to feature Bond in it. And mm. notably, he's not in silhouette a lot of the time, whereas everyone else is. You actually get to see Roger's face, which, of course, if you're going to pay him to be there, you're going to get his face on screen. Um, but I think really to talk about the title sequence, you have to go back to that lovely scene in Alan Partridge where he describes it beautifully. Clang, clang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, clang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang. Nobody does it better. And I'm a naked woman in silhouette with a gun spinning round. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it. Oh, bit of nipple. So, uh, July 1977, the film gets its royal premiere at the Odeon Leicester Square, and the date they chose is the 7th of the 7th, 77. Isn't that cool? For 007. Is it? I thought so. Well, no, because it's 007777. Well, look, that's nitpicking. But anyway, <laughs> Princess Anne and her husband, Mark Phillip, Phillips, and Earl Mountbatten were there making up the royal contingents of the audience. And apparently, as you said, the ski jump in particular went down a storm with the audience uh, in the premiere who stood up and applauded it. So it had a great reception there at the premiere and it was also well received by critics as well. The Sun at the time said it's the best Bond film so far, the sexiest, the fastest moving and certainly the most witty. Uh, Daily Mirror said from the opening credits to the final fade out kiss, the latest James Bond epic is unqualified joy. This is cinema entertainment at its very best. Variety bit more mixed on it they said as always story and plastic character are in the service of comic strip parody an excuse to star the prop department set designer stunt arrangers optical illusion chaps and such commercial suppliers as the maker of the sporty lotus car a lethal job that also to converts to an underwater craft the guardian bit more scathing a case of license to, to overkill it costs 13 million dollars lasts for two hours and five minutes and the star of the show yet again is not roger moore nor the very edible barbara bark Oh. or even that camp amphibious Kurt Jurgens is a supervillain it is the designer Ken Adams Ken they've Adam. clearly not had Cubby Broccoli's spaghetti <laughs> clearly <laughs> not but most importantly for the movie it was a huge smash at the box office it took 46.8 million dollars in the US alone and took box office globally to 185 million um, so According to this report that I read, that's an estimated 21 million people seeing the film on the big screen, which is amazing. Um, it smashed the, uh, the the box office record at the Odeon in London after six days. And uh, apparently one million Brits had seen the film by its fifth week on release, which again just sounds phenomenal. And it was so popular in London when it was released 
that it stayed playing at the Dominion Theatre until Christmas and then at the Pavilion until February the next year. I mean, that gives um, Top Gun Maverick a run for its money, I think. Mm. Um, and in terms of award, like we said, Marvin Hamlish was one of the ones that got uh, a lot of praise for this one. He got nominated for Best Original Score at the Oscars and it's the only Bond film to receive that honour so far, which I thought was amazing. Mm. And also a nomination for the Best Original Song. The film was also nominated for Best Art Direction for Ken Adam and Peter Lamont. Again, probably very worthy there. Um, and then it was also nominated for Original Score and Song at the Golden Globes. Uh, but not many wins, unfortunately. Uh, again, it was nominated for Music and Production at the BAFTAs. And it was nominated for Song of the Year at the Grammys for Bond 77, which I thought was amazing. Um and it did win one uh, Writers Guild Award. Uh, uh, actually, sorry, no, it was also nominated the Writers Guild Award for the best comedy adapted to another medium for Christopher Wood and Richard Maybaum. Best comedy. That's interesting, isn't it? Isn't Ian Fleming book comedy apart from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Hmm, I don't know. Just an interesting, uh, yeah, quirk there. Um, but let's have a listen to what our listeners had to say, Brendan. Have we had many three-word reviews for The Spy Who Loved Me? We've had a handful, so let's let's have a look. Um, Vinnie Harris ninety four said classic Bond movie. Good one. Um, Matonic and Lime said vastly overrated remake. Ooh, harsh, harsh. isn't it? Um, half monk, half hitman. Hello, Luke. I said Rogers Bond materializes. There we um, go. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Um, the podcast that wouldn't die said stone cold classic. Um, Graham ba- Barrett says triple X is triple A. That seems pl- like too many words. words. It does, doesn't it? Tri- oh, no, written written X, down. X, writ- X, no, but writ- yeah. yeah, written written down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Adam Adam S says biggest and best. Neil Lee Training says poor train scene. Hmm. Is he getting mixed That's... up with uh, Live and Let Die? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think it's a good, it's a very good train scene. I like the train it? scene in this one, yeah. Yeah. Um, Nikolai Quack says, Roger's best performance. Mm. I think, I think we all tend to agree on that one. Yeah, I think for Roger's performance, I think it's a tie between this and for your eyes only, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think it's more fun to be had here though. Oh yeah, a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Craig Main said everything comes together, which is what we've said many, many times about this all, all coming, uh, all the parts making it work. And um, just a couple more. Um, Jukebox Jim says Roger's best, iconic. And uh, Space Odds nineteen eighty five said saved the series. What, what do you think about that? I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that really is fair. If you're coming off the back of sort of three. Uh, critical um uh not not flops but like three critically um underwhelming films shall we say yeah basically they nearly got to the end of the 70s and not had a hit yeah essentially i mean they they, they were all the films have made money right but uh, this was the one yeah. um but i always said like i've said a million times i think the problem that they had from um uh, from Sean Connery leaving was the the turmoil behind the scenes was yeah. causing discord. Obviously, between I'm talking about between Cubby and Harry, and there was a lot of discord behind the scenes, and that then translates into uh, a troubled production. Um, yeah, it's like 
an analogy I always think of, you know, is, is if a football team don't get on behind the scenes, they're not going to play well on the pitch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think I think there was a lot of that. Um, and so this one is one where, yeah, it all, it all sort of comes together. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the legacy, I mean, I just wanted to um, say a few things about this. Is I, I would say this is easily my, one of my top three favourite Bond films. Like with no shadow shadow of a doubt, um, and I think the way I think about it is, you know, we always talk about Goldfinger, you know, being the gold standard and the one where everything came together. Mm-hmm. This is the one where it all comes together again, in a way of like just in a perfect sort of harmony, all the elements align, and the film that they make just becomes the gold temp gold standard for that era. I think this is the this is the the typical this is the the gold standard of the of the nineteen seventies Bond films. I mean, I just wanted to sort of list some of the things, the elements that I've just been jotting down that I think um, you can point to as as things that have worked really well in this film. Number one being Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And he's a great Bond in this movie. He brings his his own personality to the to the film. Uh, but he's also deadly as well. Like he, when he needs to pull the trigger, he does pull the trigger in this film. Um, and he's charming. And you, he's believable as the as the as the love interest. He's believable as the secret agent. Um, and I just think he's he's one of the star stars of this of this thing. The hench people as well. Obviously, you've got Jaws. Jaws is one of the all time greats. Uh, he's up there with Odd Job for me um, as one of the hench people. Then you've got Ken Adam and his set design. Uh, it's just superlative. Every single, as I think Roger says on the on the commentary, every single frame in this film could be a painting. The way that it's been lit, the way that the the, the set design, even like when you look right at the start of the film, you've got um, Gogol's office, and the way that it's designed, it's a huge cavernous space, and there's just a chair just in the middle of it. Yeah, <laughs> I just love that. Um, but every 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 scene, every room can be like that. The log cabin that you first meet Bond in is an amazing piece of set design when you see it. Um, and then on top of that, all of that, you've got uh, great set action set pieces, the car, the, the jump, uh, the, the all the military stuff in, um, in Atlantis. You've got the Navy attack. All that sort of stuff is really well choreographed. Um, you've got a brilliant script. You know, the Tom Mankiewicz like, witticisms throughout makes it a funny film as well. Um, and it's got great locations. I could go on. Um, mm-hmm. And then, obviously, yeah. on top of all of that, you have got the music, uh, which is which is just doing uh, a, a huge, a huge um, service to the film as well. How about you, Tom? I mean, is there anything you would criticise the film for? It it feels like a hard film to levy any sort of criticism about because I don't want to do like any retrospective look of oh how they treated people in the seventies that sort of stuff. I think even that how it's it's written well that the female characters get a good time and your amasova is one of the more fleshed out bond girls that we've had in quite some time so i think in terms like i i find it hard looking at everything you just listed to go this is what's wrong with the film it there isn't anything wrong with the film it's probably one of the perfect bond films and there aren't many of them yeah it's it's the bond formula isn't it yeah you know absolutely you know from start to finish across the board that's how you do a bond film that's what they're striving for, even now. They're striving for that. And, you know, it shows you how hard it is to do because how many have they done 15 since? And they've they've not really perfected it like that, have they? 
I, I will criticise that we didn't get enough time of Roger Moore on the wet bike. <laughs> I want a protracted 10-minute sequence of him just looking cool riding that thing in his naval uniform. Perfection. I'm surely someone's done a YouTube loop of that. I mean, that, that'd be If it doesn't, great. listeners, create it for us yeah. and send it to us. That's fine. Actually, but just on that note, the costumes in this movie are fantastic as well. And that's something we don't talk enough about on the podcast. I think costumes is something we brush over a lot. But I've already mentioned the, the snowsuit. Triple X's costumes are terrific throughout this movie. Um, Roger looks incredible in his naval outfit. Um, Stromberg looks a a proper villain. They're always dressed apart. That's another element of the film, I think, worthy of praise. I mean, Brendan, I wasn't expecting you to turn up dressed as Carolyn Monroe, but uh, we appreciate the effort you made. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If if I'm going to throw one criticism, it's that the uh the, the shooting a uh, a gun through a pipe would that wouldn't work would it right <laughs> would that work that it feels like it would pipe yeah. yeah but it would just it would lose momentum wouldn't it along the way if it hit the side yeah well but i think i, I genuinely do think that every time i watch it i'm like why why do you need to do it like that this pipe yeah yeah it doesn't make sense does it I love it that he just keeps peppering him afterwards as well. Like he's already shot him in the bollocks. He's like, no, I'm going to shoot him four more times. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in terms of the, the, the status of the film with fans, it is pretty well beloved, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I posted the other day on Twitter that I was watching this film, uh, just an offhand tweet. And the next thing I know, 200 likes and a bunch of retweets just saying how much people loved this film. And it wasn't like trying to garner reactions. It was just... I'm watching this film. Everyone's like, yeah, I know. Isn't it great? <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. And I even it's, think... it's quite rare for that to happen, isn't it? Yeah. And I even think with something like Goldfinger, Goldfinger's had this reputation of being the best Bond film for so long um, that when you sort of talk about it online, you, you, you cover it. There's, the people are there. Want to, they want to sort of pick fault with it. There are issues with mm-hmm. that film. Um, it, yeah. is, it, it doesn't uh, necessarily... Um, have that same affection as this film does with a lot of people um so uh, i think that's interesting in a way i wonder in a few years time whether this will be considered the greatest of all of them but um who knows well i think it didn't it didn't create that perfect formula goldfinger still has that credit mm. but goldfinger has some what i will call ickiness to it that i still struggle with retrospectively um some pretty bad stuff looking back on it this film doesn't feature any of that so it has the perfect formula without some of those issues laid on top so i could see that happening yeah it takes all the great stuff from goldfinger and turns it up to 11 doesn't it yeah and also all the great stuff of you only live twice which i think is another one of the great connery bond films um Mm -hmm. which has that formula um in in, in an interesting way and it takes that it's almost like uh, you only live twice is the trial run for this one um in that you know, it takes out a lot, like I said, the ickiness of that movie and uh, gives you something a bit more interesting. And the, and the Amasova stuff, I think, is uh, adds a whole, like, interesting dimension to it that we hadn't got um, in uh, in You Only Live Twice with a strong female presence. Yeah. And I, I didn't really mention it too much, but I just think the model work in this is, is some mm. top-notch stuff. The Atlantis yeah. looks great. Uh, yeah. Fantastic set. All the little the ships... There's some like super marionation work almost going on. It feels like a Jerry Anderson production, especially when the subs are leaving Lipperus. And it just feels like I could see Thunderbird 2 just sort of fly by and help out towards the end. It, and that's like, that's a nostalgia button that I like being hit. <laughs> 
Wow. Is there anything else to say about Spy Love Me, Brendan? No, I don't think so. No. This, I mean, nobody does it better. Nobody does it better, indeed. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a Roger Moore sort of uh, agnostic, you do you can get on board with this one. I, I think <laughs> Roger Moore agnostic is being polite. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I definitely can get on board with this one. And, and look, if, if the only negative I've got is that he shoots through a pipe, <laughs> then we're on, we're on good terms, aren't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Scott... Thank you so much for joining us. What can we expect on Spy Hards coming up? Well, I'll take a beat and I'll do my plug in a second. But congratulations to the both of you for 100 episodes. It is a landmark achievement for anyone. And when it comes to James Bond podcasts, to me, nobody does it better. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Very thank kind. you. Um, they paid me 20 quid to say that, folks. Uh, <laughs> don't get... Don't get You're easily bought. It's <laughs> yeah, all, all it costs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm poor. Um, on Spy Hards, no, yeah, my my podcast. That's right. Yeah, we talk about spy movies every week, and literally next week, once you've had your fill of Roger Moore, jump on over to us because we're talking about Quantum of Solace. Uh, we're joined by the one of the pillars of the Bond community, Mr. David Zaritsky, is coming on the podcast to talk about the film, and we've got three interviews as well with some of the crew of the film and the cast as well as an interview with Matt Whitecroft, who did the Sound of 007 documentary recently as well, all coming out in the next two weeks over on Spy Hard. So now's a very good time to jump on over. The Bond extravaganza. Certainly is. It's the Christmas present everyone wanted. <laughs> uh, so for us on the, on the James Bond 80 said podcast, uh, we will return uh, next week with The World Is Not Enough, I believe. Um, y- yep. So, uh, but back into Brosnan's zone. We've got two Brosnans on the trot, Brendan. It's the moment you've been waiting for. Ah, oh, finally. Finally. <laughs> finally some good food. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we'll have two, um, two Piers Brosnan movies on the trot, and then we'll do Thunderball, and then we'll just have one more James Bond film to cover before we reach the letter Z, which will be a sad moment for all of us, but uh, at this time, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, without further ado, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond Aid Z podcast will return. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy, with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. James, I need you. So does England. Nobody does me better. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it half as good as you. Baby, you're the best. Baby, you're the best. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 